0: A lifetime original podcast.
1: Man, I love when people tell me we can't do something. Watch me. Cool. That's all I needed. Thank I know. you. People,
2: if you, know, if you know you know,
1: you know. <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: Hey y'all, welcome to the season. To finale, the finale, the finale episode of the table is ours, the podcast where we talk about all things black. That's black inspiration, black radiance, and black liberation. I'm here with my superhuman,
1: superhuman, superhuman. superhuman. I super see you.
0: <laughs> yes, superhuman co-host Kirby Dixon. Hey y'all, and if Kirby. Were a whole vibe, a mood, an energy, this is easy because she would be like a slay the day energy, a slay <sighs> the day
1: vibe. <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I'm literally spider man you right now. Like, is that you? Or are you talking about me? Am I talking about you?
0: <laughs> yes. I just feel like you slay in so many aspects and so many pillars and so many tears of life. Like, Work slay, personal slay, emotional slay, spiritual slay. You slay the <laughs> day. You do it very well.
1: Oh, don't make me cry <laughs> on this last episode <laughs> of season two. And y'all know who that is. That is my out-of-this-world, extraordinary co-host, Ooh. Amira Lawali. And if Amira were a whole mood, a mm-hmm, vibe, mm-hmm. and energy, y'all, she would be electric. Oh, I love that. A one word adjective that I feel like personifies everything that I feel being around you. So I think you have a good, an incredible energy. People want to be around you. Um, I love you have that. a way of bringing people in and they feel better than they did before they met you. And I think that's electrifying. I think that's the adjective I have for you. To close out season two. I love that.
0: I love that. I love that. I love that so much.
1: (laughs) Y'all, speaking of moods, the season two energy that we are coming to you with, and we have to thank our sponsors for giving us the once in a lifetime incredible electric slay the day opportunity to close out season two with the most divine energy I think we've ever been in the room with. This episode is presented by Martell Blue Swift and Acast Creative. Martell Blue Swift is the first spirit drink made of cognac VSOP then finished in bourbon casks, a true innovation for the category. This is just one example of how the brand has been redefining conventions for over 300 years, y'all. They want to inspire people to create their own path and like today's Oh, so very special guest, open the doors for others to do the same. But before we get into our guest for this week, Amira Lawali, since it is the finale, the season two finale of The Table is Ours, the finale? I think it's time that we do some reflection. You love to reflect. Listen, I love a little moment to think back on all that we accomplished because Lord knows we have not celebrated in the moment still. Still
0: have not celebrated, but it's coming. It's coming soon. It is coming.
1: But how has this past season in particular inspired you?
0: Oh, inspiration from a season. Well, I think it's very obviously from all of our guests. We're very, very blessed and lucky to have some very inspiring guests. Mm -hmm. From a Stacey Abrams herself.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: From Stacey Abrams to Kelly Rowland to Tia Mori having like a really sincere, intimate moment and reaction
1: with us. Amir, that was a moment. That was really a moment. Yeah. I
0: just, I think back and I think that the key to all this is like their Mm. honesty and openness was inspiring. And then behind the scenes, I think that we did more than we've ever done before. And what I mean by this is I think last season we came in questioning a lot and thinking that certain things in certain lanes with us were weakness, mm-hmm. but season two, no, no, no. We realized that those quote unquote weaknesses, those quote unquote things were actually our superpowers that we use to get people more open, that we use to push ourselves further creatively. I just think we finally realized and like stepped into our power this year and this mm-hmm. season.
1: And I'm very proud of us. <laughs> Shout out to our superpowers being charged, locked, and loaded this season, girl. (laughs) I also think this season, we found a way to be more
0: open than ever. Like, still with guidelines, still coded at times.
1: (laughs) Coded, but candid. Love it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Does it feel different for you having now two seasons under our belts? I do. It feels, it feels right It doesn't
0: just feel different. It feels right. I think season one, we were both so nervous. Season two, I can hop on this interview and be as relaxed as possible. Yeah. And I think maybe sometimes it's a little too relaxed. Sometimes I say things here that I'm like, oh, my whole company is going to hear it. (laughs) But it just feels right. Mm -hmm. And it feels a part of my job, but like a part of like what I do now.
1: Yeah. So how about you? How has season two
0: inspired you?
1: Oh, my God. I think. I think the thing that I love about us is I see that we're always growing, whether we see it in the moment or not. And there's a couple of things that when I think about season two that stand out for me, unrelated to all of the incredible knowledge, advice, um, conversations that we've had with all of our guests. But I think, one, the move over to Lifetime and the fact that we have an all-female team, like an all-women team, really just... Solidifies to me that women can do absolutely everything and anything that they put their minds to. And we can be supportive and collaborative and take feedback and feed off of one another in a way that I think is hard to find sometime in a work environment. And the fact that we now cultivated that team under a larger entertainment company umbrella is something that I'm constantly inspired by. It's great. It makes doing the work and the long nights and listening to cuts on the weekends worthwhile. And I love that. I also think, personally, what inspired me this season is working with you and our producer, Aisha, and watching myself kind of step more into my power as a producer. Because I feel like before, in season one, if someone were to say I were a producer, I would be like, no, I'm not. <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, I guess like, sure. Like it's just a title. And now I think I really believe that. And I, I feel confident and comfortable with giving feedback and notes and sharing my opinion in a way that I wasn't in season one. So I think just getting more, experience under our belts has inspired me to step into my power as a storyteller alongside you and our incredible team. And I think that shows in the conversations that we have been able to have with our guests this season. So that's what inspiration, or that is what has inspired me a lot for season two. I know that was really long-winded, but that's, that's what I think of. That's what I think of when you ask that question. (laughs) So question for you.
2: How
0: do you feel now that we're closing out season two? How do I feel?
1: I feel great. I feel great. Yeah, this season was truly a labor of love. We were involved in every aspect of putting the season together, from the themes to the guests, to the booking, to the editing, to the producing. I feel so accomplished and I hope, you know, our listeners feel the same way and they feel like they've been getting fruitful conversations out of the ones that we've wanted to have with our celebrity black faves. Um, I, it's just, it's, I didn't know it when we started the season, but the season came out better than I think we could have even imagined before we got started. We know we're good, but like, we're good, good. (laughs) How about you?
0: I feel I feel great about this season. I think we've built out an extremely well-rounded, balanced, multifaceted season. Okay? We went from Stacey Abrams to La Roach to Kelly Rowland. Yes. This has been, like, I think we've covered so, much th- so many things that we care about, so many things that Black people care about, so many things that our listeners care about.
1: I'm proud of this season. Yeah. Isn't it pretty powerful to see guests and people that you look up to be willing to be so vulnerable with people they just met? Like, it's so clear to, to me that, like, sometimes people just want to talk about things unrelated to what they are promoting or that feel a little different than what they're normally asked. And if you ask those questions, they will open up. And I think that's what I love about this platform so much is that we're, we've been able, thankfully, to find ways to get our faves to open up and have really deep and vulnerable conversations. Like, that's dope. We've discussed from polyamory to politics. Girl. It's like, what? Like, who else? Girl. Put that on a quote card. (laughs) Put that on a t-shirt. We went from shaking ass with Big Frida in season one to, I don't even know. To Afrofuturism. There you go. speaking of Afrofuturism, I think it's time. I think it's time to tell the people what they want to know. Oh, are they ready? Who is closing out season two of The Table is Ours. Oh, are they ready?
0: Are we doing this now? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like we need like a, like a button right here, like a boop, 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 like something, like Pew, 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 <laughs> pew, pew. <laughs> so
0: as we look to the future, there is no one better, no one, no one better to do that with than our finale guest of season two, Janelle
1: Monet. <laughs> on a tightrope. Go ahead. Yes. Mic drop. Close the curtain. <laughs>
0: Janelle Monet is a Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, and award-winning actor. Her energized, retro-futuristic sound made her an R&B sensation, and her albums The Arc Android and The Electric Lady landed her in the top 20 of the Billboard charts. She not only writes, sings, produces, and raps, she brings her talents to the big screen, starring in award-winning films, such as Moonlight and Hidden Figures.
1: When we talk about multifaceted talent on this podcast, Janelle is top of mind. She literally does it all. And we sat down with none other than the Janelle Monet to talk about the artists and music that influenced her career and the family ties that keep her grounded. She explains how she kept her style. Oh, my God. God, did she walk in with style and voice while attending a predominantly white performing arts school and the risks she took to build her career her way. She also gives her personal insight into Afrofuturism, how it informs black culture and why it's so important to her identity and her music. Plus, as if that is not enough, y'all, we get a first look into her new collection of short stories titled The Memory Librarian, an anthology based on her stellar album, Dirty Computer. Mic drop for season two, The Janelle Monet. Let's get into it.
2: Beautiful faces. How are you?
1: <laughs> how Good, are how, are you? how are
2: you? I'm doing well. You know, I'm sure like you guys just
1: yep you didn't even have to say anything (laughs) (laughs) exactly you didn't even have to say it
2: yeah I'm just like okay all right okay okay you know just trying to handle one thing at a time
1: yes
0: we like to start every episode with some iteration of this question what does joy look like for you this week
2: well first thank you for having me on this show (laughs) <laughs> um, I love what you guys do. You know, I had an opportunity to kind of pick who I wanted to talk to, and I pick you. Um, oh my gosh. Wow. It's such an Yes, honor. yes, yes. You wow. guys are doing beautiful stuff, and I'm actually uh, in a joyous space just being able to connect with anybody. I mean, I've been. I think I've been in the the house a lot. Like most people who are, you know, I haven't caught COVID, thankfully. Uh, knocking on wood and praying for anybody who has had to go through it, right? so I've been super like vigilant on testing and just kind of staying to myself, but in isolation, uh <laughs> you can absolutely drive yourself nuts, so I think I'm in that yeah. nuts stage, so just talking to you guys brings me joy um but in general, you know, I'm most like joyous when I'm doing the things that I love. Whether that's creating art, you know, mostly when I'm working on ideas with the right people at the right time for the right reasons, that's yes. when that's when I'm it's, it's joy. And also when everybody, when I don't have my phone with me and I'm at a party or a kickback, yes, um, and uh. that's like that's a place of joy for me when everybody is doing it. Like we're not trying to post anything online. Yes. We're just like mm-hmm. in the moment. We're present um, and we are just like appreciating this moment because as we know, we'll never get it back.
1: oh my God, you are speaking to my spirit <laughs> when that phone is off and nowhere to be found yeah.
2: it's bliss, yeah, well, my phone just accidentally drops in the ocean, and I just nobody can find me exactly <laughs> you know you have to find the joy in that, you know there's yes. joy in it. <laughs> like when I
0: accidentally lose
2: my phone, why am I at most peace? Yes. I'm always like, I wish I would have
1: lost yes. that 20 hours ago <laughs> because no one can ask you for anything. You can't ask anyone else for anything. You can't be bugged. I hear you. So that it's is a also great a
2: place. You don't have to text message anybody back or yes. think about the fact that you haven't, or, you know, it's just that, yeah. Being present, yes. I will say, is uh, where I find my most joy. Like, seriously, being present. Yes.
1: I love that. Well, we are not manifesting you losing your phone anytime soon, but I am putting in the universe more time (laughs) of you being in the moment and sitting with your joy and your presence. We wish that and love that for you. All right. Well, we are going to jump right in. We have so much to talk to you about. You know, you've been so open and honest about being raised in a working class family and how that has kind of sparked joy for you and inspired your art in the past and in the present. Like in what ways did your upbringing influence your start in the music industry?
2: Well, I think it starts with family. Those are your first cheerleaders. Those are your first Mm -hmm. uh, people who like let you know if what you're doing is celebrated and, you know, if you're on the right path and if they support you, that's your first support system. So family is everything. I mean, I, I grew up in a really big family. Um, mm-hmm. I'm like one of like 50 first, I have 49 first cousins. And so wow. you know, my mom, yeah, that. my mom was the baby of like 11 kids, 12 kids. My dad was one of 11. Yeah, so I grew up in community. Like I had a built-in basketball, football team, you know, mm-hmm. um, YMCA club already. <laughs> Soon as I came out, of my mom's womb. So, <laughs> I learned a lot, like a, about people. So, when I run across people in this industry or just in life, I'm like, mm, "You're like you. You remind me of my uncle, or you remind me of my cousin, such and such, or such and such." I'm able to, you know, have compassion. I'm able to also know how to deal with people better because I was just kind of forced into that. And when it came to art, and when it came to like talent shows. My family packed out every show that I had. They were there, front row, rooting me on. You know, I just, I never thought that what I'm doing now is something I couldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Oh, I love that. I love strong family ties. It means a lot and it gets you through the best of times (laughs) and the worst of times. And the worst. Yeah. 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 That's a beautiful. For
2: sure.
0: For me, I... Like to think that my family kept me grounded when I came into this industry. We're not in the music industry, but we're kind of like in film and TV. And I think this industry is unlike any other, and you could mm-hmm. lose yourself very easily.
2: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I
0: like remember who I am and where I came from when I think of my family. How did your strong family ties keep you grounded in this industry when you're first coming up?
2: Oh, they'll let you know when you go back home. You know, I was my first kind of year of getting a deal and. Um, being on TV I was still sleeping on you know the couch in my auntie's yes. house when I went home when I couldn't really afford a hotel room or your family keeps you grounded like people don't call me Janelle Monet actually my auntie is the one who told me to go by that oh um, wow yeah it's my it's my middle name monet but my family calls me pumpkin they call me mm-hmm. nail they call me <laughs> like I'm still I'm still that to them you know which is great because I can I get an opportunity to kind of just turn off work mode or, or artist mode, if that if that makes sense. And I get an opportunity to just reconnect with my roots. Um, but I also what comes with that, you know, that groundedness is uh, you also got to set boundaries and let family know like, hey, I've grown as this person. Mm-hmm. You know, With family, you have certain family whose views you just don't agree with. And you may have been when you were younger, you may have been like intimidated to say something to the aunt or the uncle, you know, um, or even the homophobic family member. I also learned how to stand up for myself around family and stand Mm -hmm. up for the people that I love and the communities that I love. Um, And it's uncomfortable. But, you know, I think that's what family is for, too, is 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 enlightening one another. And when we don't agree um, or when we see something that we feel like isn't coming from a place of love um, or or it's hurting or harming somebody else, then uh, I think that's what families should do is just speak up about it and let's talk about it. So, yeah, I mean, a good, healthy amount of that because we love each other. We care about each other. So at the end of the day, we'll always have each other. But it's a good mm-hmm. opportunity to kind of talk through real life um experiences and topics with family. Family is the best people to challenge you. I was yeah, just they telling you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they will push your buttons. My <laughs> sisters can check me like no other. Like I will the best read of my life, yeah. I will be silent.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. So so will mine. I have I have a little sister and she uh it's the little sisters all the time. Yeah, it's, it's always little, little sisters, sisters. <laughs> they will get you but she's she's my confidant. I can talk to her about anything. Mm
1: -hmm. I love hearing you talk about family because I just feel the passion and the joy that you feel when you're speaking about it. And we feel the same way. Um, We are huge fans of your music, but I will admittedly say I did not know everything about your upbringing. And there was a moment where Amir and I both went, oh my God, this is us. When we learned that growing up you were the only Black woman in a a sea of white classmates at your drama academy, but you made sure Mm -hmm. that you did not want to lose kind of your style and your voice and the things that you believed in as a result of that environment. And Amir and I are in corporate America, right? We're in a very white network, but this podcast is a little bit of us keeping our style and our voice and bringing forward the people that we love and feel deserve a platform, regardless of what we're promoting on our networks, being in that situation and taking you back to that part of your life. How did you maintain your style and voice as the only Black child in a very white space?
2: <laughs> so in, in, in Kansas City, I went to a predominantly Black um, school, and, um, you know, middle school and high school, high school mostly. And it was a culture shock, moving to New York and going mm-hmm. to perform in art school and then being mm-hmm. like that one. And I just remember always getting the whiz. That was the song that they wanted me to sing, Home, which is a wonderful song. But it was like, OK. I hmm. see what you're doing. Yeah. Right. And and just certain things they would say. And I don't think it was coming from a place of... Um, Harm like they were trying to harm me by their words, but I think it was because maybe they had not been around a lot of black folks themselves- mm-hmm. It just let me know like, okay, this is gonna be another moment where I'm gonna have to show up for myself and I'm gonna have to speak up uh mm-hmm. when I feel like uh I'm being marginalized or uh stereotyped, or you know when I feel discomfort uh because you're uh, thinking that black folks are monolith, like we're monolithic. We're all you know the same and there's no range there and there's no, you know, that's we know that that's not true. Mm-hmm. So it was just up to me to just like really take bigger risks as a result. I'm like, oh, they think that, oh, I only like this type of thing, that I can't do this type of thing, but it's up to me to rise to the occasion And ask Mm -hmm. for more and to say, no, I'm going to be doing this. This is what we're doing. This is what I'm doing. I want to stretch. And I think as I started to stretch myself at that performing art school, which changed my life. And I made some really great friends there and great teachers. All of it was a a learning experience. I was living with my cousin, just for context, Mm -hmm. uh, in Spanish Harlem. Mm Mm-hmm. I've lived there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we literally slept in the same bed together while I was in drama school because I, she had a small little place. I couldn't afford, you know, to I couldn't afford New York at that time. And so she would go to work at night. It worked. So when she was at work, I was sleeping in the bed when I was going to school during the day. She was coming home so she would be able to rest. So it all worked. Right. We made it work. But as I was, you know, pushing myself and discovering the things that I didn't love about kind of like the musical theater world and the typecasting and the limited roles on Broadway. Because I was like, that's Mm -hmm. not, I was like, I'm too big for Broadway. Honestly. That's it. Talk it. That's it. (laughs) When I thought about the roles that they were offering at that time, I was like, no, I have too many. I'm a writer. I love Mm sci-fi. I love storytelling. There are so many things that I haven't seen. You mean they've been playing this same play for decades? What's new? What's next? And I think it was my hunger for wanting something new um, that made me not get lost. I was like, this is not it for me. And uh, that's when I made the trip. And I also wanted to go to Atlanta because a friend, my, my friend at the time was living in the AUC going to Spelman, going to all the frat parties, Morehouse. Mm
1: -hmm. Totally different vibe.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I belong here. (laughs) Like having the time of her life. And I was like, oh my God, I'm sitting up in here in this bedroom, bed. You know, these people up here testing me every single day. Um, (laughs) I just, I didn't, I didn't feel like I had found my, uh, I hadn't found my tribe for lack of a better words. So yeah. when I moved to Atlanta, that's when I really started to listen to my own inner voice. Like I took all the techniques in the training, but I, I just, I was like, I'm off training wheels. You know, I want to, I want to, I have something to say. And I just started writing original music and, you know, no more cover songs, none of that anymore by god have these
1: industries benefited from people like you who challenge them to think bigger than the confines of what it means to be on broadway to be a musician to be an artist like i can't even imagine what that that was like at that time but i literally kudos to you for thinking bigger and not being afraid to do so that's huge that's huge
2: yeah. Yeah. You know, it, when I was making those decisions, like my family did not understand it because these are people who pray for you to go to New York. You know, they're yeah, sending, yeah, of you, uh, yeah. sending, you, sending you money and they're like, yay, my niece is in New York. Oh, she's doing this. <laughs> right. So when I up and left and moved to Atlanta and like dropped out of performing arts school, they were like, what is wrong with you and i was like this has to work because i didn't want to move back home you know um i didn't i didn't want to go back home i, was, I think i was embarrassed and just kind of ashamed like oh, and then my friends were still in college and i was mm-hmm. like i left so i had to make it work and once i found my 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 people in atlanta like we just we were like, this is, this is what we're on. This This is is what we're doing. Like I found other people who were just on the same frequency as me.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. Your vibe and artistry, top tier, but also like so unique. And I'm, I've always wondered like who has influenced you in your artistry, past artists, current artists that you pulled from when you were finding your sound, finding your voice, like who
2: influenced Mm -hmm. you? Oh my goodness. Um Lauren Hill was one of my biggest inspirations. I mean, I'm there's so many people who can, you know, say that, but I just remember seeing her, hearing her. She was kind of one of my first concerts that I had gone to and just like feeling like wow, you know, at that time in my life as I was evolving, I resonated with her, but I knew I couldn't be like her, you know? Mm-hmm. I knew that I couldn't it was I was like there's only one Lauren Hill. So I, I, I had to like be pushed as a result to figure out what my thing was going to be, right? What, what I was going to have to say, what new uh, thing was I going to be bringing to the industry in the same way that she inspired me? How could I do that? What was going to be my way? Yeah. And um, that was a lot, you know, because mm-hmm. what you want is you want other people to, to, to build off that foundation, Because here's the thing, like, everything has been done at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. when we think about music, I won't say everything has been done, but for the most part, music kind of repeats itself. Art Mm kind of repeats itself. But it's the artist who takes the different combinations of what they see. It's like nobody came up with the color blue. Nobody came up with the color red or yellow. Like, But the way that they put those colors together when they're creating art is Mm -hmm. what makes them unique. It gives them their specific flair. And so, um, as I started to just kind of realize that, I mean, there were certain people like for writing and songwriting, Stevie Wonder, David Bowie. I love Prince's lyrics. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I love the cheekiness and just like the picturesque nature. Um, Joni Mitchell, the poetry, um, shoot, I can go on and on. Um, I was a big Tupac fan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can rap California Love. I can rap yes. like basically the whole Machiavelli CD album. <laughs> um, so so rap really inspired me a lot. But uh yeah, it was always like I've always been like an eclectic uh artist, you know, just mm-hmm. in terms of my taste. I can go from Jodice to David Bowie, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I that I I I love. I love. I can, you know go from Lauren Hill to uh, uh, Rachmaninoff. Like, I just love people's ideas and hearing what they have to say and then just figuring out what it is that I have to say and how I can uniquely do that. Mm-hmm. Dina, I have to give you your kudos for a second because you are this
1: huge mega artist star. But still really? your lyrics... <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> your lyrics have a way of feeling so intimate and so just dynamic. Like when I listen to your albums, I'm almost in a different world if I'm being completely mm. honest. It's, it's, it's really beautiful to see. And I was going back to the first time when I saw you live. And mm. I was in college. I went to a predominantly white institution. I went to Penn. And you were our spring fling guest And I lost my mind. Oh, I remember that show. (laughs) And I'm like, these kids don't even know. They're not going to understand, man. (laughs) I think it was even raining that day. We literally were in concert hand in hand, like literally singing all of your songs. And it was just an incredible (laughs) moment. And it's like people like you that I feel like I remember those moments. They impacted me. I can't remember every concert that I've been to but yeah. yours still has <laughs> an imprint on me. <laughs> oh, my God. But you're you're speaking about people who have influenced you. Are there any artists now new or kind of new that you think you have influenced their musical style because you see a little bit of yourself in them?
2: Oh, yeah. There are definitely um, artists, you know, even some of my peers uh, and then up-and-coming artists who have either let me know, Um, that I've influenced them, but that's all love, you know? And I think time Mm -hmm. will tell uh, who I've made an impact on, you know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. I just take it further than I have. It's all love, Mm -hmm. but it was interesting. I had a dream, maybe like, I recorded it on my voice notes. I had a dream maybe like a month and a half ago. And I had a dream that there was this young um, person. I don't know how they identified And they were on stage like moving so fast Mm -hmm. and they had on the black and white and it wasn't exactly them, you know, having my type of music or uh, dancing like me, but the energy was the same. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of like on the side of the stage and I was watching them. And, you know, when I looked, my mouth dropped and I was just like in my dream I just started crying. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, wow, this person is amazing. Oh my God. It was like I saw hints of me in them. I saw myself in in this person. But I wasn't jealous. I wasn't I was just like, yes. Proud. Ah. Yeah. Like so proud, you know? And I just remember waking up and crying even more. Because that happened and I was just like, man, I, oof. It was just, it it just, it still gives me chills just kind of thinking about it, but it was a big moment for me. And so even in my dreams and in reality, I I always give thanks when people are inspired and when they go out and they really just have the guts uh, to do this because making art is difficult. Yes. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. And every time I return to the studio, every time I return with an idea that I think I'm gonna just flesh out, I'm reminded, I'm humbled. This shit is not easy.
1: hmm And it takes time.
2: It does. So much time. Patience.
1: I think you described
0: the essence of how your artistry will continue perfectly. It's the energy. Like, it's, of course, it's the pen, it's the art itself, but it's also your energy that I think will transcend. It's like I think mm-hmm. I, can, I can like feel it and just know, mm-hmm. oh, that's Chanel You guys are so beautiful. Thank you. Stay tuned, because after the break, Janelle gives us a quick look into her new Afrofuturism anthology coming soon. You don't want to miss it.
2: We really want to
0: talk about Afrofuturism.
2: Yes. Okay, we're super hyped about this. We're very excited (laughs) about this.
0: But before we even like dive in, can you explain what Afrofuturism to those listening who may not know what it is?
2: To me, Afrofuturism is Black folks um, seeing themselves in the future, how we want to see ourselves, however we imagine that. And I always go with, you know, seeing us um, take nothing—the nothing that we're given from our history—and even sometimes from our present and transforming, turning that nothing into something, thriving, like really, really um, thriving in totalitarian societies and being the protagonist of our own world. Mm -hmm.
1: And what specifically does Afrofuturism mean to you? And what was your first introduction to Afrofuturism?
2: I mean, I think it was Sun Ra. And if you look at my tightrope video, you'll see the mirror faces. Yes you'll see that reflection. And I think I I watched the Sunrise video and I couldn't make up like what they were saying or I just remember how it made me feel. And I knew it was like connected to dirt, to the ground, but it was also like satellite energy and futuristic energy that was just kind of like palpable, transferable. And mm-hmm. then I started reading, I, I got, uh, someone told me to read Octavia. I was doing stuff and then I would do interviews actually. And then the interviewer would say, oh, have you checked out this book or that? You were remind, it reminds me of this. And I had never heard of these things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think I checked out Octavia Butler's Wild Seed. And that was like my big introduction into Afrofuturism in terms of literature. I think it was *Sunrise*. I think Missy Elliott has had yes. that afrofuturistic yeah. vibe yes. um so shoot watching her videos Grace Jones feels afrofuturistic like anything mm-hmm. that's like pushing us front and center and it feels free like it feels mm-hmm. like that free ass energy like you can't stop this person this person is unstoppable yeah mm-hmm.
0: yeah. We're both kind of like in the content space for our networks. I'm a development producer. And I think when the topic of Afrofuturism comes up, sometimes it's pitted against the theme of black pain or going Mm. into black history when it comes to like making content, making films, even making music. And I personally don't think they can be pitted against each other. I think there's room for both content. I think there was a need for Afrofuturism. There was a requirement for to see a light and see the future and see people in this way. So I'm wondering, like, how do you see it? Do you see it as a way to distance from black pain? Is there a room for balancing both?
2: Yeah, I think balance in all things for me. I mean, that's why I came out with tightrope. You know, no matter whether you high or you low, everybody has a tip on the tightrope. Mm
1: -hmm. Context
2: is important, too. Where did we come from? Sometimes you do have to show the struggle. Sometimes you do have to show the pain for people to really appreciate what it took for that person to be who they are and where they are today that's the hero's journey. Yep. Yeah.
1: I totally agree with you. Oh my god. And then I go back to the space when I first listened to Tightrope. And I wonder why do you think it's important to put afrofuturism in your music and and in what ways do you do you still plan to do that as you move forward? Um I know I was listening to Blasting. uh, Dirty computer yesterday. (laughs) Um, And and it's obvious about the influence that it has had and the impact that it has had on your life, but in what ways do you try to make sure that it shows up in
2: your artistry? Well, I try to start with honesty. Honesty. Wherever I am. And I think it's just in me. You know, it's always in me to, like, wear my Blackness with pride and um, figure out, like, what haven't we seen yet? You know? What haven't we seen? Because I think I'm a very visual person. So I think movies and TV and cinema and in addition to music, all of that, when you see something, um, sometimes it's better than just talking about it. So that's why I try to do that through imagery. I try to do that. Yeah, I try to honor that. Like, it's just, I don't know. I think it's just in me. (laughs) Sometimes (laughs) it's, sometimes I'm going for it. Sometimes I'm not. And it just happens because it's just Mm -hmm. a part of who I am. It's a lifestyle. It's nothing that I go and I'm like, I'm going to, you know, sometimes it's just like, it's just what I'm on. Mm Mm-hmm. What I love
1: about you is I see how you challenge our ideas of very like commonplace things and allow us Mm -hmm. to kind of think about them in different ways. And that's one of The many things that we love about you. Um, So, I have a little bit of a more challenging question when it comes to Afrofuturism. And the idea of Afrofuturism actually is like a political act in itself, in that we've taken the reins to create the future that we as Black women, as Black people, want to see for ourselves, the things that we Mm -hmm. want, we know that we deserve. Mm -hmm. And you've actively, for so many years, used your voice to speak out on issues that you care about and that you think are important for other people to at least become knowledgeable about (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. as they navigate this world. So how do you balance kind of practicing your free speech in your art as well as the backlash that can sometimes come with speaking out as openly as you do and so beautifully do?
2: Yeah. You know, I think when I feel like I have something to say and I feel compelled to say it, I say it. And I think that in general, it's a risk speaking, you know, because you're going to piss somebody off. Somebody's going to have something to say about how you said it, or somebody's going to have something to say about the grammar. Somebody's going to mm-hmm. have something to say about something, right? So everything is a risk, you know. You may say something that could offend a group of people, and you can look at that later and say, hmm. You know what? I probably could have said that differently, worded that differently, mm-hmm. right? And um, that's great. That's that's great. I mean, but I know, I know when I say something, it's wor- it's gonna be worth the risk. Exactly. Most yeah. times. Sometimes it might not, but most times, I don't give a f- You know, like I know yeah. that <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> piss off this group of people. I don't care. Like it's yeah. not meant. It's not. It's it was meant how I said it. I say this all the time. Freedom is not free. It always comes with a cost. It does, yeah. Sometimes it's your mental health. It's like what you have to deal with. That's why I look at those who are on the front lines, activists, people who are like really doing the work every single day to protect Black lives. And that's a lot that they have to mentally deal with. Like it's not, it's like (laughs) people think it's easy to be the people in the public eye that we grow to love and appreciate. Like, it comes with a cost. you You're not with your family. Because they spoke their minds. Yeah. Yeah, you with a family. And then you got to have the weight of, oh, am I letting down the community that I'm speaking of? Or yep. like, oh, I want to do something different now. Like, I need a break. Like, that whole guilt of 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 doing that. And I think, you know, I'm not the only one that deals with those things. But I think it should be talked about even more so people understand what it does mean to um, to speak your mind, you know, and to... Yeah. Yeah, especially in this day and age.
0: For sure. What I think it's so important what you just said is like when you feel it, when you feel the need, when you want to, and it's your choice, then you will speak out and it will be done. I feel like there's so much yeah. pressure too. And I think that's what so many people get caught up because they're doing what they feel like they have to do and it's not like on their heart and spirit. Yeah. It's like a heavy bait. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could talk to you forever.
1: <laughs> Literally, <laughs> it's not we have pages yeah. and pages,
0: but you guys are this is great. Been- Oh, thank you. This has been yeah, such an feeling. honor. And I, I have to give our listeners what they want. And they're going to want to know, like, what's next for you? We're fans.
1: We want to know what to look mm-hmm. out for next, what we should be, like, peeping. We heard there's yes. a
2: publication in the works. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I am so happy you asked about it. Literally all I have been doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I am releasing um The Memory Librarian. April nineteenth, you can go and you can pre-order it. I have mm-hmm. signed almost eight thousand copies. Wow, uh, my gosh! Yes, of inserts <laughs> that they're putting in the book, so you can go get a signed copy um, as well. Order that, but yes, I've been working on the when the pandemic started. I had a lot of concepts and ideas that I had wanted to you know flesh out, and one of the things that I did was reach out to artists that I thought were just like amazing at what they did. And they championed queer and black folks and like really did a beautiful job with their own stuff. But I reached out um, to people that I felt like were supporters of Dirty Computer because mm-hmm. The Memory Librarian, this is a, a, a fiction. It's like five short stories and um, it's from the world of Dirty Computer, but it's not about, it's like, so imagine if you watch the film Dirty Computer and it was centered on Jane 57821 and like that specific story. Okay, imagine zooming out. There are more stories. Wow. So one of the titles is The Memory Librarian. Another title is Time Box. Uh, another title is uh, Save Changes. Um, we have Time Box Altered. And we also have Nevermind. And I got an opportunity um, to collaborate with Johanka uh, Delgado, Eve Ewing, uh, Don Johnson, uh, Danny Lore, and Cherie Renee Thomas. And these are all exceptional writers. Um, this book deals with, it's definitely what I would say, like, they probably wouldn't have it in high schools today as a result of this whole book banning thing. Terrible. But yeah. That's yes. why. Yeah. That's. But that's why I think it is so important for um, for people to get this book and also all of the other books that they don't want you to read. You know, yep. as I, I have yeah. been talking to a lot of um, you know my artist friends, and um, when I think about the this book is kind of meta. Because it deals with what happens when this totalitarian society erases all the memories from the people that they deem dirty, the queer, mm. wow. the those who are using their, their speech to speak out against uh, the abuse of power, people that they deem as sexually um. Uh, deviant for, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, loving the same sex or, you know, people who are coming into their own and not conforming to what that specific society wants them to be. And so it's kind of meta when you think about the censorship and when you think about, you know, all of that. But I'm excited because it doesn't just stay there. It shows how they're fighting, how they're getting out. Like, we are the protagonists. All of the stories Mm -hmm. basically are um, queer-led, women-led stories, which I love. Love to see Um, it. Yeah. (laughs) So, so yes, I'm really excited. I really want people to go get it. Like, it's not some juicy tell-all, I know. But being able to collaborate with these five amazing artists, like, not a lot of people have done this. Like, I could have said, okay, I'll just do a book and you know, do some quotes and some pictures mm-hmm. or something like that, which I'll probably do later on. But I was like, no, let's get the community of people who have been writing. And, uh-huh. you know, I gave them all, you know, topics. I said, this is what I want it to be about. It's kind of like if you're in a studio with somebody and you guys are you like, I got a song idea. I want to work on it. And then you have the bass player come in, drummer, yep. you might play keys, like everybody's collaborating. That's what this project is.
1: How different is this creative process for you in writing a book different from your musical creative process? It's still very collaborative, but writing a book in general just seems so intimate. So I'm always so intrigued by people that take that leap.
2: Um, you know, like like I was just mentioning, one of the things that I loved is about this is like you don't see people really collaborating as like writers and artists yeah, like okay. usually it's just one person, they say, okay, I'm gonna get all the credit. But no, this for me was super important. Um, you know, even if I offered what I thought it was gonna be and I gave notes and I worked with, I have a really, really great editor that I have to give a shout out to, Kyle Dargan, who is amazing. And so he kind of kept everything Thank together. You, Kyle. Yes, Kyle <laughs> made sure it was in on time. He he, you know, talk to the writers a lot. Cause I also in 2020, I don't know about you guys, but it was like going into a pandemic. I didn't necessarily have the tools to deal with that. And so I went through a little spell of like, oof, just depression yeah. a little bit, you know, just like, what Absolutely. is this anxiety, yeah. all of that. And so having him to like conversate, you know, to talk to all of the writers. Um, when I couldn't and just making sure that we did check in, you know, that was that was just important, having that person who did have a strong backbone to uh, keep us all together. Um, but one of the things that I do wanna mention about the book is that it deals with uh, sexual plurality, gender plurality, uh, nonconformity, um, Afrofuturism, obviously, Mm -hmm. uh, and personal identity versus uh, national conformity. We also touch on surveillance culture. Wow. It's a lot of surveillance culture in here. Uh, You know, it'll have some sex drugs, rock and roll. You tackled some biggies. Yeah, sex drugs, (laughs) rock and roll, the resistance to authority. Um, And then what it means to really search for acceptance in yourself, and um, search for acceptance when it comes to love. And, uh, yeah, it's. I'm so proud of it. So that's all I've been doing. So please, 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 please. I'm we excited. We cannot
0: wait. We can't wait Diamond. to get our copies. We'll get the signed copies. No questions asked. You also <laughs> just listed, like, 20 themes that we could have also <laughs> dived in and spoke with you about that we would have yeah.
2: loved to. So, so I, we'll see you
1: next season. We to yeah, see we'll see you, see again you guys next have season.
2: to, have, you know, have me back on. I'd love to be able to 100%. to talk and you know be able to talk to you guys about it. I would love that. Yeah.
0: We end every podcast with some iteration of this question. My black is the future because.
2: Ooh, okay. My black is the future because I am the future. Perfect. Beautiful. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh my I mean, gosh! I <laughs> but yeah, that's how I look at myself. You yes. know, I, that's that's how I feel. Yeah.
1: Oh, my God. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for,
2: oh, for talking you. with us and chatting with us. You are so welcome. Thank y'all for having me. And have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful day.
1: If you like The Table is Ours, you'll love the hit podcast, I Love a Lifetime Movie. Join comedians Naomi Kerrigan and Megan Gailey as they recap their favorite Lifetime movies, one wild plot twist at a time. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch new episodes every Thursday.
0: The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amir Luwali. This episode was also produced by Aisha Jordan and edited by Bill Moss. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks, our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of The Table Is Ours. Brought to you in partnership with Martel Blue Swift and Acast Creative. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast. See you next time.